0: Hello again everyone. I'm Miranda Bartos and this is the Big Q podcast. So this week we're shaking up the format a little bit and instead of an interview or a discussion you all are going to hear a story. Uh, I originally heard this story last year in a class but I thought it was super applicable to the theme of this podcast so I asked our guest to come share. So let me introduce my guest uh Professor Robert Finocchio. Professor Finocchio, who are you at SCU?
1: Well, thanks, Miranda. Um, I'm uh, a couple different people. Uh, One job I have here, I've been teaching Business 70 and Business 170, which is an introductory business course uh, in the Levy School of Business for now almost 17 years. And also, I'm on the Board of Trustees and previously served as chair of the Board of Trustees. And prior to serving as chair, I was vice chair for uh, six years. So I spend a lot of time here. I'm also an alum.
0: Awesome. Okay, so without further ado, listeners, feel free to sit back, relax, and listen to Professor Finocchio's story of ethics in the real business world.
1: Well, thanks. So um, I'm going to tell a story about a company called Informix, software. And Informix is a Silicon Valley company. It was founded in 1980 by an engineer out of UC Berkeley named Roger Sippel. And he was a very, very, um, still is a very brilliant engineer and uh, quite an entrepreneur. And he had an idea to commercialize a relational database for Unix. That's not important to the story, but that's why the company was founded. And over the first um, seven or eight years of its history, Informix did quite well. It was a very technical company. And Roger really was mostly interested in writing code and inventing things. Uh, He had taken the company public. It had grown to about $100 million. But he decided he wanted to go off and invent new products and new companies. And he and his board decided to bring in a new CEO, and in 1989 they hired uh, Phil White to replace Roger as CEO, and then Roger uh, faded away. Phil White, um, unlike Roger, uh, his career was in sales and marketing. He had started in IBM, and he had come to, IBM, uh, had come to Silicon Valley and had been CEO of a couple of companies, and he was a very, very skilled and experienced sales and marketing person, and he replaced Roger. And in the seven or eight years of his tenure, uh, Informix grew rapidly. It grew to almost a billion-dollar company. And it became, by the end of 1996, the technology leader, by, by most measures, in the, da- in the database management system market. It was the number two database company in its uh, market behind Oracle, and it was growing faster. It had just finished an $800 million uh, year, and analysts were projecting Informix would do over a billion in the next year. It had over 4,000 employees, and this was big, important software that big businesses used in mission, mission-critical applications. It was at the core of Walmart's uh, store system, Sears, Federal Express, AT&T, American Airlines, United Airlines, uh, BBC, Wells Fargo, Uh, Carrefour, DHL, so a lot of really big companies used this software and was very dependent upon it. Um, By the end of 1996, there were millions of individual users and I believe over 100,000 business customers. But in April of 1997, um, Informix had a surprise financial announcement. While Wall Street had expected Informix to be showing a profit for that quarter, they announced a huge loss. And this was after several years of industry-leading growth and rising profits. So the board of directors of Informix decided it was perhaps time to recruit a new CEO to replace Phil White. And the plan was Phil would remain as chairman for about a year and um, help train the new person and, and introduce the new person to the customer base. So the board was hoping for a smooth management succession and hoped that the company would return to profitability and growth very soon afterwards. So on July eighteenth, 1997, I accepted the job as CEO and president of Informix. And really by the end of my first week, I realized that there were some severe problems at Informix, far more than I had imagined. I certainly knew because they had missed the quarter that there were significant operational problems. But what I learned On the second or third day was that there were probably uh, very severe financial problems, very severe potentially financial fraud. In essence, uh, high probability the books were cooked in parlance at the time. And we convened a board meeting and I, after my first week, and I got all the directors together and told them what I thought, which was this could be a disaster of immense proportions. And I had to report that what I had learned was that several of the senior executives and management were probably dishonest. There was some risk the company might not even survive. And you um, know, I was grappling with the de- decision to stay or to go. Um, I decided to stay. Otherwise, this would be a very short podcast. Uh, but I s- decided to stay. One of the conditions was that Phil White had to be fired as chairman, and the board fired him, and he left the meeting. And I reported that it was highly likely that we would have to do a major restatement. And a restatement is when you tell the Securities and Exchange Commission, we were a public company, traded on NASDAQ. You you tell the government, you tell your shareholders, you tell the regulators that all of the numbers that you had sent them um, in the last several years were not accurate. And had, we had to disclose that potentially there was accounting fraud. Because it was, we were a public company, we had to issue press releases every time we learned something new. So this was a, a huge shock to really everybody involved. I'll fast forward several, um, several months and, and describe the situation as it really was. And again, I'm, I'm giving this really as background to the real lesson from this story and why I use it in my class. But... Uh, Several months forward after, you know, millions of dollars of forensic analysis and uh, investigation, we realized that there were accounting errors that really added up to way over $200 million going back three and a half years. Uh, Net-net that where we had shown three and a half years of profit in the last, in that period, we really had had three and a half years of huge losses. By this time, uh, the chief financial officer had left, a lot of the finance staff was in meltdown, Um, and... Very importantly, when we started to make the press releases about potential accounting fraud in the company, uh, customers started buying the buying the product and A software business is real simple there's uh, there 's revenue and there 's people' expense and If people stop buying the product, you start losing money and burning cash very, very quickly. So our expenses uh, very soon were were much larger than our revenue. We had an impending liquidity crisis at one point. Our treasurer said uh, we had about six weeks of cash left. A lot of other people were quitting. We had lots of lawsuits um, from customers with whom we had not uh, done straightforward business. We had made some real estate uh, mistakes. The SEC had started an investigation because anytime you uh, talk about a restatement or mention the potential of fraud, they get involved. Uh, NASDAQ, which was the exchange where our stock was traded, started a delisting process because whenever you become delinquent with the SEC, which by definition we were, they start a process to throw you off the stock exchange, which makes it very difficult for shareholders to sell the shares. So that would be a crisis for them. We had significant conflicts and concerns with our external auditors. Um, A question at this point, uh, those of you familiar with such things, would be, Well, what were the auditors doing while the company was was losing all this money and potentially committing accounting fraud? Um, And at the same time, the market was getting a lot more competitive. Um, The largest competitor in the space, Oracle, very, very effective competitor, uh, responded uh, very aggressively to our signs of weakness. IBM came into the market where they had not been before. Microsoft, uh, they were all smelling blood in the water. And imagine being an employee at Informix. They read in the paper that their CEO, a prior CEO, might have committed fraud. They learn that other people might have committed fraud. They read the financials that the stock is uh, going down in value. Customers aren't buying the product anymore. Um, Why do they want to work there? Of of course, the stock price collapsed. That left some very unhappy uh, shareholders And customers were very, very concerned about Informix. You know, would Informix even survive? And companies that had bought our software, in addition to the money they paid us, in in many cases tens of millions of dollars, uh, had invested on top of that additional tens of millions of dollars, you know, writing additional code and building applications using this software. So they had a massive, massive investment in Informix. And if we were going away, you can imagine how upset they were. So I'm going to quickly go through what we did on the business side to solve the problem and then, more importantly, talk about what really happened and why it happened and what we can learn from it. So for those of you interested in the business side, we did what you might expect. We uh, raised a whole bunch of additional equity at uh, very expense, at a very expensive price. We sold some assets, some land. We got a bank line of credit. I had to do some very, very uh, painful layoffs to reduce expense. Uh, But my strategy was not to lay off uh, engineers so we could maintain our position as technology leaders. We hired a whole bunch of new people, a chief financial officer, treasurer, chief information officer, general counsel, almost all the the sales leadership, uh, marketing, human resources. We worked hard to settle a lot of the lawsuits. And I spent uh, a year traveling around the world visiting all of our major customers, trying to explain what happened and what our plan was going forward. Um, I also obviously had to do the same thing to Informix uh, employees all around the world. We added new board members when it was possible and we changed the auditors when it was, new poss- when, when it was possible. So by November we worked hard to reposition the company, relaunch our products, and um, actually very quickly we were able to return to profitability and near break-even uh, cash flow in the fourth quarter of 1997. Um, it it really took us until November of 1997 to finish redoing our financials and reissue our financial statements and refile with the SEC, saying these are really the numbers, and um, we beat the clock by about 12 hours on being delisted by by NASDAQ, but we announced that our restatement you know wasn't 10 million, wasn't 20 million. But it really over two and a half years was way over $200 million. In January of 2000, we announced a settlement with the SEC where we signed a consent saying all these bad things happened at Informix. The SEC was happy with our cooperation and and they had no issue with any of the current employees. We settled shareholder litigation in May of 1999 for $142 million. This is where our shareholders sued us saying, hey, you guys lied about what was going on in the company we bought stock and you know we lost money because of your misrepresentations you owe us some money so this, at the time this is one of the largest of such settlements one hundred forty two million dollars uh, but uh... but we settled that um, and in october of two thousand uh... federal prosecutors indicted the informix executive who ran europe mideast and asia and and africa for criminal securities fraud um, And requested extradition and in November of 2002 uh, Phil White was indicted by a grand jury for securities fraud and trial was set to happen in 2004 in January and I was working to be uh, uh, a witness for the prosecution but right before we were going to go to trial um, they did a plea bargain deal and Phil White uh, pleaded guilty to one count of securities fraud and was sentenced to 60 days in federal prison and uh, two years of supervised release and a small fine and some community service. My sense is if this had happened now in today's environment, uh, the sentence would have been a lot more severe. But that's the background. What's really interesting and I think far more relevant for us is what happened and why did it happen? Well, from a standpoint of the accounting, it's important to know this just wasn't one transaction that was done wrong it wasn't one deal, it wasn't um, a a few gray area decisions that were made. Uh, You can go back and look at the SEC documentation to see that this was a virtual encyclopedia of techniques to cook the books in in a software business, to improperly recognize revenue, which fundamentally inflates the the profits of the company, the, the top line, the revenue, and the bottom line, the profit, and mislead investors. And just to give you some idea of the kinds of things that happened at Informix during this period, all of which were wrong, illegal, and violations of accounting rules. There were uh, backdating of the sales agreements, uh, entering into secret side agreements with customers. It's called a side letter, and it's a violation of accounting rules. Uh, we recognize revenue on transactions where, with customers who uh, were not credit worthy and had no intention to pay. Um, there were some improperly extended payment terms which violated revenue recognition rules, Uh, shipped some software that wasn't a finished product, which was a violation of revenue recognition rules. There were some barter transactions which were improper and some channel stuffing. Net-net, it just wasn't one thing, one technique, one transaction. It was pervasive inside the company. And that, I think, is important context to the real important message here. So how and why could this happen? Well, clearly for all this bad stuff to happen, there were poor internal controls. Um, that We had poor external audits and reviews. The organization structure was not appropriate. The board probably did not do its job well. The organizational structure, the legal entity structure, was way too complex, making it um, easy to hide things. And there was in the industry, I would say at the time, sort of a, a "do what you can get away with" ethic uh, that sort of was pervasive in the enterprise software industry. Um, that's just the way it was then. But if you cut through all of this, and it, you know, and I've had a lot of time to think about what happened at Informix because a lot of people went through a lot of pain and suffered because of what happened there. It, it's really not so much about the accounting. It's it's not about federal regulation. It's it's really about things that people did, and you know because I work at Santa Clara and you know we're a Jesuit university. I try to you know categorize things in ways that might be relevant and impactful. And upon reflection of things that happened at Informix, I, I sort of put what happened into three major buckets. I, I would call them three kinds of sins, and and the first sin that happened at Informix is the least interesting and I would call that the sin of greed. There were a lot of people at Informix that just flat out wanted more money and found ways to game the system, to cheat uh, by you know various complex techniques but fundamentally they were like bank robbers but they wore suits and a lot of them had college degrees. Uh, They stole money from the shareholders, they stole money from the company, they just wanted the money. So this is very discouraging to see. Um, it exists in the world, um, and part of, the, part of what happened at Informix was there were some people that just wanted more money. So I tell this part of it because a lot of people think this is what you know corporate fraud is about. It's all about people who just want the money. And yeah, sometimes it is. But I think if we, as I thought more carefully about what happened at Informix, there were sins that were... I think more important for us to contemplate. The second kind of sin is what I would call the sin of hubris. Now, I have never spoken to Phil White about this, as you might imagine, he doesn't come over to my house very often. Um, but a little bit of background, um, and again, this is just you know my general knowledge, uh, Phil was already a very wealthy man by the time he got to Informix. Looking at the financial records in Informix, Phil did actually, actually did not take very much money out of Informix. Other people did. He did not. Um, he was already a very successful business person with a very good reputation. So why did he do this? I don't think Phil did this for the money. I don't think for Phil it was a sin of greed. I think for Phil, it was a sin of hubris. So what was going on at the time, remember Informix was the number two, the upstart, growing faster, probably had better stuff than the you know, big, strong competitor Oracle. And the CEO of Oracle at the time, the founder, Larry Ellison, very public figure, a little bit flamboyant, and it became very personal between Phil and uh, Larry Ellison. And Phil was a rock star around Silicon Valley because Informix was winning, was gaining share on Oracle, had better product, was winning big accounts. So Phil was on the covers of magazines and the newspaper. He He was the model for the incredible success of this upstart company against the big behemoth Oracle. So my sense was maybe what happened, you know, three and a half years before You know, they came up a little bit short in a quarter, and it meant their informics was going to miss the number, miss Wall Street's expectations. So maybe what happened, um, some people, maybe Phil, said, you know, we got this order on January 5th. What happens if we just pretend we got it December 31st? We could count it as part of the December quarter. It would make the December quarter big enough to make the number. What the hell difference does it make if you book it on uh, December instead of january it's just the customer doesn't care it's five days' difference, so some of that started to happen and i'm sure the logic was uh we'll only do it this one time and by the way, the motive is noble it's not it's not for me it's not for me phil white it's for my shareholders it's for my employees it's for my customers. Just this one time we'll just right on the edge make a slight adjustment so things are okay and we'll we'll fix it in the future. So you do that, and then the next quarter happens, and maybe the hole is just a little bit bigger. So you go, well, just this one time, I'll do a little bit more. Maybe I'll go into the second week. Just this one time, and again, it's not for me. It's not for uh, my money. It's not because I want more money. It's for my customers. It's for my shareholders. Um, it, it's not for me. And then you do that quarter after quarter, the hole gets bigger and bigger, and the techniques you need to use to make the numbers get more and more extreme. So you go beyond changing the dates on contracts to doing deals that never should have been done and violating all kinds of revenue recognition rules until two and a half, three and a half years into it, the hole is just too big. And this is what happened in the first quarter of 1997, that they just could not come up with enough techniques to fill the hole. So how did Phil get sucked into this? Again, this is just my imagination. My sense was because of Hubris, because he was the rock star, because he was the guy who was good enough to beat Larry Ellison, and it was almost impossible for him to come forward and say, hey, we screwed up, we missed a quarter, made these mistakes, um, You know, business was down, had a bad introduction of a new product, whatever it was, could not bring himself to come forward and say we're not the superstars you think we are, I'm not the star you think I am. This is the sin of hubris. And I'd argue that for our audience, Santa Clara community, I, yeah, I don't think many of us will be bank robbers and commit the sin of greed, but could we commit the sin of hubris? Could we lose sight of who we are because of an image we have and people we want to please? and? you know, cross the line because of hubris? Yes. That's why I think uh, this is the second um, important sin for us to contemplate in terms of what happened at Informix. So let's go to the third sin, and I would categorize this the, the sin of weak character. Some additional information. I'm very confident that of all the accounting fraud that happened at Informix, that the CEO the CFO and the general counsel knew almost all of it because it was impossible for one person to pull this off in corporate fraud there almost has to be more than one person so I'm very sure that all of that group of three people knew most of what was in the 200 250 million dollars of restatement but my guess is my estimate is that there may have been maybe 100 and 125 other people who worked in the company, who knew something about something. And who were these people? They were divisional controllers, um, contract uh, managers. They were you know, regional salespeople. They, they were financial analysts. They were attorneys. In essence, they were people just like you and me. And yes, I'm very sure that there's, there's no one of these people that knew everything, but many of them knew one or two things, knew something, knew that we were doing something that was wrong professionally that they would know was wrong based on the fact they were you know, a trained accountant or finance person or attorney, whatever. Maybe 100, 125 people knew something wrong was happening and not a single person came, came forward until the first week I was there. So how did that happen? I think it happened because of weak character. And I think this is where we can see the dark side of teamwork. So maybe imagining what was going through the minds of these people. These people weren't doing it for the money. Yes, they had stock options, but none of them was gonna get rich by looking the other way when a contract was backdated or uh, an accounting rule was violated they didn't do it for the money. They did it because they wanted Informix to win. They wanted to be part of the team. They wanted to support their boss. They 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 wanted to be in the club. They wanted to be aggressive and care for the company They want to win in the marketplace. And they did not want to be the, the person that did not go along. So this is the dark side of teamwork. It's the dark side of solidarity, that in essence, each of these people somehow subordinated his or her own moral compass to the crowd. It was more important to be liked, to be part of the crowd, than to do what I'm sure each of them knew what was the right thing to do. That's the sin of weak character. And is that something that could happen to you or me? Absolutely, yes. And some of these people sat in Santa Clara classrooms they had many of the same professors I had, and you have, and yet this happened to them, and it was the sin of weak character. They subordinated what they knew was right, what they knew was the proper thing to do, they subordinated it, they subordinated it to the to the will of the crowd and there's There's one um, you know quick anecdote that I tell my students. When I, a couple of weeks into the job, I flew over to the UK trying to figure out, you know, who was who and who were good guys, who were bad guys. And after flying all night, I met with uh, a young man who, early 30s, was a controller of our UK um, subsidiary and came into his office. And it was a kind of a, even though it was a summer, it was a, you know, dark, dreary London day. And and I was looking at him, and he had a window behind his desk and went out into the fog. And on his credenza, there was a photo of, I assume, his wife and two young children. And we exchanged a little um, small talk. And then I asked him a variant of the question, well, what did you know and when did you know it? And he stammered a little bit, and then he said, well, I knew we backdated some some contracts. And I said, well, thank you for telling me that, but of course, you know, you're fired. And, and his face froze. And, and I, ha- I remember this vignette, just seeing the, the, the blood drain from his face, his eyes wide open. And as I was looking at him, you know, in, my, in the periphery of my vision, I saw slightly blurred this photo of his, his I assume his wife and, and two kids. And he was going to have to drive home that day and tell his, his wife that he was fired because he didn't have the guts to do the right thing. And, and also, he was going to have to deal with the realization that his career was over, that he was now radioactive. I mean, he never was um, uh, uh, indicted for anything. He was a small fry in this whole thing. But, you know, his reputation was gone. All of the work he had done, and I think he had an MBA from some school in the UK, all of that was over because he didn't have the guts to... Do the right thing. Now, I'm sure you've heard about whistleblowers and, and, you know, in the real world, someone in his position does not have to, you know, testify before Congress. He could have simply said to his boss, you know, I'm not comfortable changing the date. My guess is the boss would have backed down. This never would have happened. Life would have gone on the proper way, but he didn't have the guts to do it. And even, Even if his boss had said, you know, I want you to change the date. And if he said, I'm not going to change the date, if his boss said you're fired, okay, now imagine him driving home that night. He's going to be able to go home and tell his wife, I got fired for doing the right thing. Those bastards fired me for doing the right thing. And what an amazing story to tell your kids. And how good would you feel that night? Yes, you might worry about paying the mortgage, you know, for the next couple of months, but someone who did that would be very valuable in the marketplace. You'd feel good about yourself. You'd have a great story to tell your children, but that's not the course he chose. So I find that third sin, the most compelling, disturbing part of the informics story, that so many people who never ever intended to do bad things, who never thought it was possible for them to commit accounting fraud, committed accounting fraud, because they didn't have the guts to do the right thing. So a quick epilogue on, on the business. Um, I stayed running it for a couple of years um, and I replaced myself with uh, a guy who really helped me save the company, uh, Jean-Yves Vexmier, who had been previously the CFO, and I agreed to remain as chairman for another year. So by May of 1999, we had survived this crisis, we were making money, we were growing, and we hadn't compromised our future because we had maintained the investment in research and development. We had a new management team in place. Sixteen months later, uh, Informix stumbled again, not because of any accounting fraud, done it, did an acquisition that did not go well, and I had made a huge mistake by recommending Jean-Yves d'Exmier to replace myself he was a wonderful chief financial officer, but uh, the board, myself included, decided to fire him as CEO. Um, we undid the, the merger. The company was split in two, and just very quickly, IBM ended up buying the database part of Informix for about a billion dollars in April of 2001. And then the rest of Informix uh, was purchased by IBM a few years later uh, for about another billion dollars. So the real epilogue is that Informix, while we did okay, we didn't go bankrupt, we never could fully recover from the impact of the fraud, and ultimately thousands of shareholders, employees, and customers were hurt, and probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of shareholder value were lost. But the real reason I, I tell this story is that none of this needed to happen, and none of this would have happened if people had seized the many available opportunities to do the right thing. And remember, you know, sins number two and sins number three. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. There are other motivations to cause us to do things we are not proud of. Sins of hubris and sins of weak character. So, I'll get a little philosophical at, at this point. Uh, I believe that there are certain moments we have in life, moments that we should seek out. These are the moments where we have a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And it's very easy to do the right thing when it's free, when there's no cost, when we're still going to be a member of the club, when we're not going to lose any friends, when we're uh, still going to get the promotion. It's really easy to do the right thing when it's free. But the moments that really define us in life are the decisions we make when the cost of doing the right thing is high, when we pay a price. That's when we find out who we are as people. And why I think this story is so important is I want my students to pay attention in their lives to when these moments pop up and maybe remember the guy in the UK or remember Phil White or remember anybody they might imagine in the group of 125 who could have prevented all of this damage from happening. I think these are the moments that define us in life. And, you know, my guess is, um, I'll speak metaphorically, not theologically, but when you're standing at the gates of heaven, and St. Peter is there with his um, clipboard, or probably today's world, he has an iPad, and trying to decide if you get in or not, You know, whatever that image is in your your brain for what it's going to be like, you know, in your last moments, you know, if you're lying in your hospital bed sort of contemplating, well, what kind of life did I lead? I You know, St. Peter's, I don't think, he's going to ask you um, what clubs did you belong to, how many community service hours did you have. I think he's going to ask, what decision did you make when the stakes were high? I think that determines... That's the ultimate test of how we have lived our lives. And I think if you remember the story in this podcast, hopefully when there are some parallel experiences in your life, you know, stop and think, is this one of those moments where I ought to work very, very hard to to make the right decision? Thanks.
0: Professor Finocchio, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. This has been the Big Q Podcast. Until next time.